0: Thank you for downloading the sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. First Peter chapter three verses eighteen to twenty-two. First Peter chapter three, eighteen to twenty-two. grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless our thoughts and meditations. As we come to this passage, I pray that you would help me to preach your word. Father, that you would give me wisdom, that you would uh, help us to draw from this passage... What you would have us do and what you would have us believe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So I preached from Luke the last two weeks because I didn't want to preach this passage, because it's hard. And I needed more time to prepare for this passage, and yet the preparing, I guess it bore some fruit. Um, there are some passages of Scripture that are harder than others, right? We know that. In general, the basic rule of interpreting Scripture is that we're to use the, the clear passage to interpret the unclear passage. Even still, sometimes there are passages that in which Even that yields little fruit. On the passage we're looking at today, or really verses 19 and 20 of the passage, is one of those passages. I've read commentaries and have not been helped much. Many of those commentaries throw in the towel right from the start. Calvin in his commentary says, The obscurity of this passage has produced, as usual, various explanations. That's his summary um, before he launches into his, his interpretation. So I'm going to state up front that I will not have the definitive interpretation of this passage. I'm going to stand on the shoulders of others. In fact, I'm not afraid to say that I have no more, maybe a little more clarity uh, about this passage than I did when I started studying it. Um, what I have gained is a sense of the various difficulties of the passage and which which I'll take us through at this point. First, verse 18 is quite clear. Jesus Christ is described as the one who died for sins once for all. And that's like Sunday school easy, right? Jesus died for sins once for all. The one who had not sinned died for those who had sinned, the just for the unjust. He died so that he might bring us to God so that we might um, enter into the presence of a holy God clothed not in our own filthy rags but in His righteousness. He was, our text says, put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. This means very simply that though He suffered through the, the weakness of the flesh, He yet arose again by the power of the Spirit. Okay, The very first verses of Romans make this same point that the Holy Spirit was involved in the Son of God's resurrection, right? All three uh, persons of the Trinity were involved in the resurrection, right? And the Holy Spirit was as well. In, in Romans 1, the first four verses of Romans, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord. So up to this point, what the Apostle Peter is saying is rather standard Christianity. right Jesus Christ died for sinners and was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then this is where things get weird. The Apostle Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Jesus was made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The first question is this, when did Jesus, in the Spirit, go and make proclamation to those spirits that are mentioned here? The second question is, who are these spirits that are described as now in prison? The third question is, how are both of those questions connected to the time of, of Noah, And how does that enter into the picture here? To to the first question, when did Jesus go and make proclamation to the spirits now in prison? Many say that Jesus, after his death on the cross and before his resurrection, literally visited hell. Okay. Calvin dismisses that opinion with these words. He says, common has been the opinion that Christ's descent into hell is here referred to, but the words mean no such thing. For there is no mention made of the soul of Christ, but only that he went by the Spirit. And these are very different things that Christ's soul went and that Christ preached by the power of the Spirit. Right? So, so nowhere do we read anywhere that the soul of Christ went and preached in, in the Spirit. If this passage was revealing to us that Christ went to preach in hell, Here's the first question I have. What would be the purpose of that preaching? We know from Scripture that once an, unbeliever, an unbelieving person dies, they face judgment and immediate condemnation. There is no second chance to hear preaching and come to faith after death. There is no second chance. The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it this way. Um, Question 86, whereas the souls of the wicked are at their death cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, and their bodies kept in their grave as in their prisons till the day of resurrection and judgment of the great day. And then question 89 fills the picture of uh, Scripture's teaching out a bit. At the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand and upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences, shall have the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them and thereupon shall be cast out from the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ as saints and all his holy angels into hell to be punished with unspeakable torments both of body and soul with the devil and his angels forever." So that makes it clear that there is no second chance for a person to repent after his death. There's no preaching that's going to convert somebody whose soul is already in the presence of hell. So again, what would be the purpose of Christ's preaching to spirits in hell if that's what he were doing? Now some say that Jesus did not preach to souls in hell at all but that this passage describes Jesus preaching to unbelievers while they were alive, right? So it's Jesus' work of ministry. The difficulty with that interpretation is that nowhere else in Scripture are living people, that people ever called spirits. Um, so that seems to be out of the question, to interpret it that way. Then the further difficulty comes into the text when it shifts to describing those spirits who are now in prison as having once been disobedient during the time of Noah. Okay, so now we're taken into uh, the past. And so this doesn't have anything... This isn't, this isn't temporally connected with Jesus' cross and death, but it's sometime in the past, past. And it is at this point that in order to account for the fact that these beings are called spirits and that they lived during the time of Noah, many determined that these spirits are the Nephilim, described in Genesis 6. The offspring, they think, they think, and I think this is improper interpretation, the offspring of angels and men. Genesis 6 says this, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men Notice that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the word said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim who were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Okay, so now not only does, is the passage in Peter difficult, but we've just had to suck in a very difficult passage from Genesis 6. right? So the idea that these Nephilim are the products of angels called sons of God with women is not, necessar- not necessary at this point. There's no reason to interpret the passage that way. The sons of God could describe the godly line of Seth. They're called the sons of God. It's the sons of the chosen line, and the daughters of men could describe the ungodly line of women descended from Cain. This would be natural generation and would not involve angels and angels and men getting together uh, to procreate. So again, we're we're back to square one. Did Jesus descend to hell? I believe he experienced hell on the cross, and that it was therefore proper for us. It is proper for us to confess that Jesus descended into hell when we recite the Apostles' Creed, but a physical descent into hell? Not sure. Did Jesus preach to spirits? I'm not sure. Um, When did this take place? Apparently during the time of Noah. It could be that Jesus is describing As preaching, the word that came through his faithful servant, Noah, during those early days, that Jesus was there preaching through his servant, Noah, during those days. But again, those he preached to about the coming flood and was mocked for it were not spirits, they were flesh and blood, men, women, and children. Harold summarizes the two main views that have developed over time concerning these two verses. He says this, One school of thought asserts that Peter is referring to the pre-incarnate Spirit of Christ who, having anointed Noah, enabled him to preach to the men of the day, whose souls at the time when Peter was writing, souls of those men when Peter was writing, were in the prison of Hades or Sheol, awaiting their judgment and sentencing to hell. The other school of thought is that Christ descended into hell proclaimed doom to the unholy angels, particularly those referred to as sons of of God in Genesis 6-2, who took to themselves human wives and bred the race of giants who were the Nephilim. Genesis 6-4. So, those are pretty divergent views, and there are problems with both of them. So, Let's pause and zoom back a little bit. Let's not get caught up in all of the details. Um, Think about that day in which Noah lived. Remember that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, is writing to those who are being severely persecuted for their faith. They are observing the whole world being set against them, just as Noah did during his time right? In, in Peter's second epistle, Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness. Outside of his own family, how many yielded to his message? None. No one listened to him. No one yielded to his message. He and his message were resolutely rejected, and God's judgment fell upon the world for the rampant violence of man and, the re- and their rejection of his word. So it seems to me since the Apostle Peter is in the mode of encouraging those that are feeling the hatred of the world against them, who are suffering for doing what is right, that he's drawing in both the example of Jesus, who preached righteousness and was rejected of men, and Noah, who was a type of Christ, who preached righteousness and was rejected of men. Right? That, that That's what I pull out of this passage. (laughs) When I zoom back and avoid the details, am I confident that this is the full interpretation and meaning of the passage? No, not at all. So moving on. Having settled on Noah as an example, he's, he's focused now on Noah. He's got us thinking about Noah. Having settled on Noah as an example, the Apostle Peter now reflects upon Noah's entrance into the ark. He writes, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The ark. The ark was the salvation of Noah and his family, right? The ark was. It was... Only by entering into the ark that those few, those eight persons were, as the passage says, brought safely through the water. Those waters of judgment sent by God to cleanse the world. The ark, therefore, stands as a symbol of salvation. It was the means by which God saved his few people, and it was the means by which Noah was saved from the reproaches and persecutions of the ungodly. That leads Peter to think of baptism. Water, arcs, baptism. You can see his thoughts coming together. That leads Peter to think of baptism, a symbol of salvation, and the difficulties of the passage continue. Right? He, cor- he writes, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Noah was savingly brought through the flood of waters. He had a sort of baptism. And believers are savingly brought through the waters of baptism. What what does the Apostle Peter mean then when he says that baptism now saves you? Is this verse a proof text for our federal visionists? Is it a proof text for our Roman Catholics and Lutherans? Uh, those who hold the view in some other Protestant denominations, that baptism regenerates those who receive it. That it's the working of the water that, that regenerates and saves. So you could say that baptism saves you in a saving sense, right? Is it support for an ex operato view of the waters of baptism? The short answer is no, it's not. Let me explain. The Apostle Peter defines what he means in the phrase immediately following the phrase baptism now saves you. You can see the phrase if you're looking at the NASB, it's set off by M dashes in the text. He writes, baptism now saves you not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Okay, so we get something that baptism is not, and then we get something that baptism is. Okay, the first thing to point out is that when Peter writes not the removal of the dirt from the flesh, he is making reference to the outward or physical act of baptism. Okay? Water is what we use to wash ourselves, right? It, in its physical aspect, washes us. And Peter says it is not that aspect of baptism that saves. It's not what baptism does. Those who claim baptismal regeneration think that by the physical application of water, like the physical application of water when you take a shower um, to the flesh, that they at that point are magically saved or justified or regenerated. That, Peter says, is precisely what it is not. Baptism's power is not the naked symbol of water. Often the error of sacramentalists is repeated today. Often um, they confuse the sign with the thing signified. Okay? They confuse the sign with the thing signified. Calvin says it this way. In baptism, the sign is water. But the thing is the washing of the soul by the blood of Christ and the mortifying of the flesh. Right? I mean... You have to wrap your heads around that. That's not complicated, but it sounds complicated. The, the sign is water. The thing which it represents is the washing of the soul by the blood of Christ and the mortifying the flesh. Outward signs cannot be confused with inward realities, all of which are appropriated by faith. Right? We must not transfer the glory and power of Christ's death to the water. That's what we must not do. It's Christ's death that got all these good things for us, not the water being applied. The water is just a sign that points to the death of Christ. So, going on, Peter then says, he defines what baptism with water actually is. It is, he writes, an appeal to God for a good conscience. He's been writing to those who are being persecuted for doing what is right in a hostile world. Christians do not want to mix with the wicked world, Calvin writes Calvin. And this is made evident in baptism in which we are buried together with Christ so that being dead to the world and to the flesh we may live to God. Now Calvin goes on to summarize the passage this way. He says, As Noah then obtained life through death when in the ark, He was enclosed not otherwise than, as it were, in the grave. And when the whole world perished, he was preserved together with his small family. So at this day, the death which is set forth in baptism to us as an entrance into life, nor can salvation be hoped for except we be separated from the world. And we begin again to be confused about the sign and the symbol, don't we? I mean what does it do what does it mean what is it what's going on what's the sign what's the reality are we saved by baptism are we not we begin to get confused again what we must maintain is that baptism is not is not one in which the outward sign of water washes our skin but one in which the actual work of the spirit in the inner man is outwardly symbolized and sealed that's it And that work of the spirit is demonstrated not by wash skin, not by water on the, on the the head sprinkled, right, but by a conscience that fears the Lord, right? The true baptism of the spirit that works in the inner man and regenerates him. How do we know that? Well, he, he fears the Lord. He has a conscience before the Lord. He has a good conscience before God, that bit, baptism which saves must be joined to faith, and must be evidenced by the work of the Spirit within. Now, if you are following me, you may be asking yourself, and I'm not sure anybody's following me, but if you are following me, you may be asking yourself, then why baptize infants? It follows from what I just said. Why baptize infants? They cannot in any way show forth the evidence of the work of the Spirit before or during their baptisms. They can't show forth any of the work of the Spirit. That's true. The answer, the reason we baptize infants of believers is that God's covenant promises apply to them. That's why. When he promises to faithful parents to be a God to them and to their children, we see in that promise the reason to apply the sign and symbol of the covenant. We do not, as was said earlier, think that they are automatically saved by virtue of the application of the water. That's to think that it's the cleansing of the dirt from the flesh, right? We do not believe that, right? And that would be to mistake the symbol for the thing itself. Those children, after the application of the sign and seal of baptism, must, must manifest a good conscience before God in due time. Then we will see that their baptism was a spiritual baptism, a circumcision of the heart rather than merely a circumcision of the foreskin. Matthew Henry explains. He says, The external participation of baptism will save no man without an answerable good conscience in conversation. There must be the answer of a good conscience towards God. Objection. Infants cannot make such an answer and therefore ought not to be baptized to answer. The true circumcision was that of the heart and of the spirit, which children were no more capable of then, then than our infants are capable of making this answer now. Yet they are allowed circumcision at eight days old. The infants of the Christian church therefore may be admitted to the ordinance with as much reason as the infants of the Jewish unless they are barred from it by some express prohibition of Christ. still with me? Digging deeper. And this is important, what he said, but I don't want, you know, again, I don't want to get way too deep in the weeds. Presbyterians, including the the venerable James Bannerman, who wrote one of the best books on the church called The Church of Christ, don't deny that baptism of adults on their profession of faith, on their coming to faith, is the proper and true type of baptism. And that baptism of infants is not the proper and true type. It's the exception. Right? And that is very important to me. In his chapter on infant baptism, Bannerman says that we must not argue the nature of baptism from infants to adults, but the opposite. Right? In the end, he writes, it is abundantly obvious that adult baptism is the rule and infant baptism the exceptional case. And we must take our idea of the ordinance and its nature and effect not from the exception, but from the rule. Right? So believer baptism is the rule. We don't, we don't here in this Presbyterian church where we baptize infants We would never baptize an adult unless they professed faith and gave us evidence of the Holy Spirit working in them. We would never do that. That's normal baptism. The the reason we don't think it's normal is because Presbyterians don't evangelize and we never see adult baptisms. We should be seeing adult baptisms after adult baptisms and then it should be like, oh, that's a child being baptized. That's weird. But instead, all we see is infants being baptized. Right? And that's because of our weakness. But here's what Bannerman says. The sacrament, in its complete features and perfect character, is to be witnessed in the case of those subjects of it whose moral and intellectual nature has been fully developed and is entire, and not in the case of those subjects of it whose moral and intellectual being is no more than rudimentary and an embryo. Infants are subjects of baptism, "...insofar as, and no farther than their spiritual and intellectual nature permits of it, it is an error, abundant illustration of which could be given from the writings both of advocates and opponents of infant baptism, to make baptism applicable in the same sense and to the same extent to infants and to adults, and to form our notions and frame our theory of the sacraments from its character as exhibited in the case of infants." It is very plain and very important to remember that the only true and complete type of baptism is found in the instance of those subjects of it who are capable both of faith and repentance, not in the instance of those subjects of it who are not capable of either. The Bible model of baptism is adult baptism and not infant, says a Presbyterian who baptizes babies. So returning to our text, I believe that the Apostle Peter is properly speaking of the conscience of those who are baptized because he, he has in the middle of the rule of adult baptism, not the exception of infant baptism. And for those Baptists in our midst, you, you may now think that I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. The rule also does not exclude the exception. Right? Just because the rule is adult baptisms where faith is demonstrated prior to baptism does not mean that there aren't exceptions to that rule, right? God has tied baptism to faith, and on that basis, we baptize adults after they profess it. Sacraments have faith as an essential element in them, right? He has also tied baptism to the children of those believers in In his covenant promises. There's a federal aspect to baptism. Right? There's a familial aspect to baptism. Never devoid of faith. God judges and blesses nations. Not just individuals. God calls to himself. Not just individuals but families. And it is that covenantal relationship. And calling that gives us confidence. In the baptism of our children. Nevertheless the rule is. Adult baptism upon profession of faith. The exception to that rule is the incorporation of children within the covenant family of God by virtue of his promises to us and through us to our children. Okay? This is all all in this passage. This is all the stuff that we have to wrap our heads around in four verses, right? And so both... Both ends of those statements, what baptism is is not and what baptism is, are very important um, to us. Very important in in not going off the rails on one side or the other in our view of baptism. Then the apostle Peter rightly ties baptism to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a sign of our union with Christ and so what happens to Jesus happens to us. This is the point that the Apostle um, Paul makes in Romans 4. Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Our sins were punished in the punishment of Jesus, and our justification came about in the justification of Jesus accomplished in his resurrection. Again, Romans 1, 3-4 says, His son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He, Jesus, was declared declared the righteous Son of God by the resurrection, and we, by that resurrection, have been declared righteous, not having a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that we may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that we may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so the resurrection from the dead is the very heart of the Christian faith. With it, the sacraments and signs and even without it, the sacraments, the signs, even faith is nothing nothing if we just have human motives in our religion then our self-denial is eminently stupid right if from human motives i fought with wild beasts at ephesus what does it profit me if the dead are not raised let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die right any conception of christianity in which jesus was not raised from the dead in which Jesus is not at the right hand of God, in which Jesus has not gone up into heaven, in which the authorities, the angels, and the domains, and the powers are not submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Any conception of Christianity like that is humanism with a thin veneer of Christian mysticism. That's all it is, right? It's the appearance of godliness while denying its power. It's cultural Christianity and has no ability to encourage those who are undergoing persecution by a hostile world. This is why we see so many cultural Christians throw off the scriptures and the faith when persecution comes. Right, Not believing the core tenets of Christianity, not believing in the actual historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God who conquered death when he rose from the dead, they see little reason to stay in the kitchen when the, when the heat gets turned on, right? There's little reason. You, though, faithful follower of Christ, are different. Your baptism, whether in infancy or as an adult, is a profession of faith. It is your appeal to God for a good conscience in a world hell-bent on denying the power of the resurrection. The world, the flesh, and the devil may try to upend your devotion to the resurrected king, but those accusers, right, as we read earlier, cannot bring a charge against you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Some some may trust in chariots and some may trust in horses, and, and they may trust in those chariots and horses because they are many, but they do not look as we do to the Holy One of Israel, nor do they seek the Lord. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who will also intercede for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written. For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered asleep, sleep to be shot, slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. In all that trouble, right, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor angels, nor life, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So remember Noah, the preacher of righteousness rejected by the world. Right? Noah, the preacher of righteousness rejected by the world, but brought safely through the flood of water. Being united to Christ and divided from the world, you will be safely brought through. You will be safely brought through the judgment of God, the coming judgment of God. You will know the eternal peace of God after this momentary light affliction. Jesus' resurrection was your resurrection. And as he went, so you will go as well. Any questions? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) None allowed. None allowed. I have no answers. These are I, I, there. There was a lot packed into that sermon. And the, the the joy of coming to hard passages is that after you beat your head on them by the Spirit, that fruit is is revealed, and 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 understanding, and and not just fruit and understanding, but encouragement in this passage. And so the context of Peter and the suffering of his people. You can see how his mind would go to Noah. You can see how his mind would go to Jesus and his own sufferings. But then he ties us in with Noah and Jesus by saying, look, look, you are united to Christ. You are in Christ. He rose from the dead. He's seated to the right hand of God. He has conquered all things as you will continue suffering. Continue suffering. One day you'll hear, well done good and faithful servant, enter into my rest.